Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented brings industrial conversations that matter, serving up the most relevant conversations in industrial tech. And our vision is a world where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 77 of the podcast, the topic is Industrial Tech Transformation Outlook, and our guest is Andrew Oben, Managing Director of Equity Research at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. In this conversation, we talk about Wall Street's track record for digital transformation, where investment is made and why, and Wall Street's tech trajectory. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, process engineers, shop floor operators, and hosted by futurist Trun Arne Unheim and presented by Tulip. Andrew, how are you? Oh, I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited about this. So you've been studying industrial technology and commenting on it for many years. I want to go back a little bit to your background. So you are a Harvard undergrad, and then you got your MBA at Chicago University, spent a bunch of time at Lehman Brothers, and yep. then a bunch of time at Merrill Lynch. So that's sort of like your broad background. Give me a sense of what went into your head when you started out. Were you set on becoming a kind of an industry analyst or was this? Yeah, no, uh, I mean, look, I graduated from undergrad. I was focusing on uh, political science and medieval history, really, and had a great interview. Ended up at Lehman, was there for four years, uh, went to business school, uh, got a degree actually at last in uh, financial analytics and uh, accounting joined what back then was Merrill Lynch, which is now uh, Bank of America. That was 20 years ago and sort of ended up sticking around. But all in, I've been doing industrial since 1996. You know, as industrial companies have uh, been doing a lot more uh, in terms of software, automation, technology, I would say over the past decade, uh, the focus of the franchise has increasingly shifted towards these things. Also, look, also keeps it very, very interesting, right? Because the companies I cover tend to be very diversified. They do a lot of things. And, you know, if you sort of try to find, if you're able to find a unifying theme, that works really well. So I'm just curious, as we're starting out here, how do you go about it when you're trying to track this sector? I, I could just imagine, you know, a lot of phone calls. You want to talk to others who are tracking this. You want to talk to the company itself. What are the sources of information to track this sector today? And has it yeah, changed sure. radically? I think what's really funny is that the more things change, the more they remain the same. I think there's a lot more data, but I think the amount of information is still the same. And I think the way for finding information is still the same. It's uh, a lot of industry contacts, what I find very useful. Some of the best meetings I have uh, going to industry events. I'll be going to Hanover Messe, things like Pack Expo, user group meetings for big companies. And of course, you know, there is a formal dialogue uh, between a research analysts and companies. So that goes through investor relations departments. So I spend a lot of time, obviously, talking to various IR professionals at the companies we cover and uh, talking to senior management of these companies, CEO, CFO, and uh, operational folks as well that the company makes available. So a combination of formal communication with the companies through sort of approved channels and trying to do a lot of legwork. Uh, talking to distributors, and uh, as I said, attending industry events, reading people blogs, listening to podcasts, uh, so all in. But, you know, as I said, at the end of the day, uh, my job consists of sort of trying to find people who know what they're talking about and uh, stay in touch with them, because I would say a lot of people say a lot of things, but uh, there are very, very few 
that really know their stuff. And it's really hard work and luck to find these people and try to establish a dialogue with them. Yeah, I find it fascinating because, you know, there's so much talk of information overload. And of course, there is overload of stuff out there. But like you said, when you're trying to track how a company is likely to do or what the sector is going to look like, you know, going forward there, you need to be very sure that you need to trust the sources, I guess, right? Correct. And also finding, of course, I would say what has changed over the past 10 years, for sure, we definitely do more data analysis because there is more data available. But I think at the end of the day, where we end up using it is sort of to confirm or to disprove sort of more informal theories that we have. But there's definitely more data availability. Hmm. Like, for example, I'll give you a project. We can uh, scrape LinkedIn and uh, figure out who the companies are hiring, what the tenure of the employees is. We can figure out what they're paying people, right? Which is useful. So you're trying to sort of think about the strategy of the company and say, okay, are they firing sort of older folks, hiring younger folks? Are they paying people? So you can get a lot of insight from that. So that kind of data definitely was not available before. But as I said, 20 years ago, we would do channel survey we would send emails and call a lot of people. It's 20 years later for people to actually answer the survey. You still have to call them, right? You still have to email. Like at the end of the day, as I said, the more things change, the more they remain the same. So let's jump into the matter then, you know, industrial tech and and digital transformation, I guess, uh, across industrial companies more overall. Give us a sense of how this has evolved and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to what's happening now, but g- give us a sense maybe first of sort of Wall Street generally in terms of digital transformation of large uh, industrial companies. How, how would you say the track record has been historically? Yeah, look, I think it's hard, right? And I, I think what's interesting is that uh, a lot of companies did not initially get credit for being very smart. Uh, you know, not going to name names, but, you know, we definitely look at the companies that you would think sleepy, old tech kind of companies, you know, these companies have set up like independent software centers like 15 years ago, right? We cover a distributor and they were one of the earliest adopters of SAP. So if I really want to understand what's happening from a macro perspective, that's my go-to CEO because he has the best systems of anybody and he really knows what's going on you know, sometimes I can get this quality of information out of the biggest companies, right? And it's just not who you think. Uh, I, I think the big transformational event for industrials was clearly uh, GE and Predix. And I think that their hunch was absolutely right. Uh, they looked at their service business, which is very hardware centric. And they really did get the point that over time, software and services and data analysis will play a bigger and bigger role over time. And if they don't get it right, they will be disintermediated. You know, as we all know, they did not get it right. I think they were too early. The technology was not there yet. I think you also had organizational challenges of a large corporate trying to move fast. So I think culture was probably, in my view, the single biggest reason for this thing not working out. Now, what's really interesting is that it's uh, years later. And, uh, you know, if you sort of dig in inside the aviation business, 
if you dig in inside power business, they've actually learned a lot of lessons, right? They really do have a lot of very good capabilities. And it's very funny when we talk to startups these days or sort of other players, we definitely sort of hear name of GE is back, right? Maybe not in the headlines, but it was a very, very hard lesson to learn. But, you know, I think version 2.0, maybe version 3.0 seems to be a lot less flashy, but actually probably a lot more functional. But I think that's what really started the dialogue on Wall Street about uh, software, particularly for industrials. And of course, I think what's very unique about industrials, and I think your folks understand, right, if you think about the traditional uh, industrial pyramid, right, and I'm talking about this five layer automation pyramid, right, where you have sort of at the bottom, you have sensors uh, and control, then you have sensing, uh, then you have monitoring, right, then you have maybe MAS, then you have ERP system. I mean, the big challenge is that it's really, really unwieldy. When I try to explain to generalists what industrial technology or industrial tech or industrial software is, I sort of say, look, it's a world where dinosaurs never went extinct because all of these core technologies were built in the 70s and never went away and just kept being perfected. Now, the issue is that in the rest of the world, the technology has really moved on and people are really now trying to graft this latest technology on this obsolete architecture that was perfected and optimized over the past 20, 30 years. And of course, the unique challenge, I would say, in industrials is that your asset is a plant, right? In the IT world, your asset is a computer network. You know, you'll upgrade your computers every couple of years. You'll upgrade your network a couple of times a decade, right? The issue here is that you have a plant, it's 30 years old, and sometimes you have machinery that's 50, 60 years old. How do you integrate it? And I've seen a lot of beautiful reports that sort of tell you that you should start with a clean piece of paper and you should come up with sort of brand new architecture. And it works, but, you know, look and see how Tesla plants are organized, right? They are state of the art, but basic architecture, you know, it's the same people who do automation of this plant, right? And yeah, you're using the latest and greatest version, but, you know, so far we have not seen this revolutionary architecture. And as a result, uh, I think traditional IT players like Microsoft, AWS, you know, they have not had as much success in this ecosystem, right? And of course, what is changing right now is that finally, maybe a decade later, industrials are discovering cloud computing. And of course, uh, that does require sort of rethinking of the architecture because that's finally sort of a big leap. So there's a lot of thought about that. And of course, as you start rethinking architecture, you know, all of a sudden the market available to cloud players becomes a lot bigger. And if before, if you look sort of an industrial TAM for traditional players, you know, what's available to them probably did not warrant a lot of attention. Right. Right. Now, as cloud is really the area that's growing, right, all of a sudden, if you dream a dream in five to 10 years, you know, the available TAM is growing fairly rapidly. And if you think what the market pays for this kind of revenue, right, all of a sudden, we're definitely talking numbers close to one trillion dollars in excess of a trillion dollars of this sort of cloud marketplace available. And I'm talking about market cap. Right. So 
the market cap at which these software names would be valued at, right? You know, the market itself is probably, you know, tens of billions of dollars, right? But as I said, all of a sudden, it's worth the time for the big guys, even though this architecture is obsolete and convoluted, all of a sudden it's worth their time to go and throw resources at it because all of a sudden you have growth, the market will value it. And as I said, credit to GE, they saw it first, but, you know, the rest of the industry, I, I think, is there. The capabilities are there. Then on top of it, of course, you have other trends. You have virtualization, right, where hardware is becoming more generic. It's more about software. It's all about sort of, you know, the processing capability of hardware is just becoming better and better. You know, convergence of discrete in process, right? People now talk about sort of maybe even virtualizing PLC. You know, so from that point of view, all of a sudden you have this very peaceful world where things have been really, really stable for a long time. And you had this ecosystem that was very protected. And all of a sudden, this ecosystem is being disrupted. And I think that's what makes it very interesting. And from my perspective, we talk to a lot of corporates. And what's interesting, everybody has seen G fail. I think there are definitely lessons to be learned from it. But as I look around, you know, there are a lot of smart people, and I think there is no playbook that people have decided is the playbook that's definitely going to work. And what's absolutely fascinating is to watch a lot of smart and capable people trying to figure out what will the future look like. You know, Andrew, I'm, I'm just reminded, I did have Jeff on to talk about his version of, of the GE story. And of course, he actually takes some blame for it, for going through that very difficult time, obviously, uh, of, of attempting to sort of transition a dinosaur as, as the first one to, to transition that kind of a company. But I guess there are many questions here. Is One that I'm really wanting to get to is sort of what do you think then will happen once the kind of investment starts to free up and uh, the software literally starts to change. But before we get to that, you had some numbers earlier that you had shared with me in terms of how little really various industries historically have spent on mostly software changes. So yes, they were proprietary systems, but they weren't spending the amounts that other sectors have been spending on IT. So I guess I just wanted to get a sense of whether that is now changing, you know, fundamentally when it comes to the dollar investments percentage-wise, you know, of, of other investments. Like you, you, we were talking about oil and gas, for example, just as an example of an industry. Yeah, no. So I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I think it really goes to the heart. What has been happening, U.S. manufacturing. So appreciate it that, uh, you know, I would say for the past 20 years, if you were a manufacturer based in North America, you really were not supposed to grow your manufacturing capacity. The idea was that there were high growth regions, uh, you could offshore, and there were definitely folks who have grown capacity for sure. But by and large, US industry has not grown capacity, right? And this created a paradox. Uh, you know, they still had to sort of grow their profitability. So they started spending a lot of money on efficiency, automation, software. I, I bet you that a lot of your viewers do not realize that today, the U.S. manufacturing industry spends more on software than they spend on actual equipment. So the overall capex for U.S. manufacturing industry is roughly $500 billion a year, of which pure equipment, manufacturing equipment, is roughly $100 billion, and software spent is $140 billion. So 
what happened is that the industry, as it stopped growing, focused on profitability and focusing on profitability meant spending less on hardware. So capacity spending has been growing maybe 2% for the past 20 years. At the same time, software spend has been growing at 7% rate at the same period of time. And what is absolutely fascinating is exactly right. Manufacturing is one of the verticals. So, you know, we did analysis of oil and gas industry. And I think the reason it's relevant, because I think a lot of startups today, everybody targets oil and gas industry, you know, because you have these big assets, uh, you know, if you can customize it for one asset, it's a lot easier than going to the factory floor and trying to customize your software for like 30 different pieces of machinery, right? And the asset is expensive enough where you can actually spend a lot of money and on time. But what's absolutely fascinating, so as I said, if you look at manufacturing today, manufacturers spend roughly $100 billion in equipment. Oil and gas industry spends $80 billion in equipment. And if you go back a couple of years ago, oil and gas industry spent actually a number that was very similar to manufacturing. And at the same time, this is an industry that today spends $9 billion on software. Hmm. Why? Because the mantra of the industry is grow, 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 grow. And it's still dominated by hardware guys, right? Uh, If you look about shale and the shale revolution, at the end of the day, it's equipment. It's not software. And in fact, if you want a metric how inefficient oil and gas industry is because of that, We've looked at the number of people it takes to lift a barrel of oil out of the ground. The number has stayed flat for the past 30 years. So if productivity in manufacturing, if if you work in manufacturing, and if your productivity stayed flat for the past 30 years, you would be either manufacturing something really, really good, or you're out of business. So we think what's absolutely fascinating is two things are going to happen, right? A, with sort of the possibility of reshoring in the U.S., we definitely expect that the rate of growth for CapEx overall uh, is going to accelerate. And because of shortage of labor in the U.S., we think uh, people will continue to spend more and more money on automation and software because it's the only way uh, to meet the capacity needs in North America. And oil and gas, look, we are incredibly excited about opportunities in oil and gas because what you have you have pressure from investors on large oil companies to improve their return on capital, right? And you've seen activist campaigns targeting some of the big players. So that's part one. Part two, we do have this energy transition going on. So what we think oil and gas industry is going to be in a position that's fairly similar to manufacturing in a sense that you will no longer have this carte blanche to grow capacity, right? And you will have to focus on efficiency. And finally, ESG and energy transition also means that A, you have to run things more efficiently, right? Because running things more efficiently means you consume less energy and you also uh, generate less emissions, carbon, chemicals, whatever you want. So we think efficiency is gonna be a huge focus as well as upgrading and changing capacity to focus more on renewable fuels. So just as manufacturing moved from growth stage to maturity stage, 
We're not making an argument that people are going to spend a lot more money on overall CapEx in oil and gas. As I said, I've been doing this for 25 years, and I've learned that it's a fool's errand to A, forecast oil prices, and B, sort of forecast these swings in CapEx for oil and gas. But we think just as in manufacturing, you ended up spending a lot more money on automation and software because you're constrained in terms of growth. We think we're big believers that you have this mega cycle in oil and gas where oil and gas industry can double, triple, quadruple what they spend on things like software. You know, this, as I said, we are not making a, frankly, directional call on oil and gas capex, you know, beyond the next couple of years. But we think what people spend on and how people spend about capex will change dramatically. Yeah. And I guess the interesting thing at the end of this, well, there's certainly many things that will change here, but you you are onto one of them, which is that the big IT players, so Microsoft Azure and Amazon AWS, and perhaps Google and others are moving into the space. There's obviously also opportunities for startups, but I guess what I'm even more interested in, what kinds of changes do you really see happening once this sort of spending has been in the market for a while, will these manufacturing sectors truly become more energetic and efficient? Is there any chance that you see them being as vibrant, I guess, as the software markets or many of the more fast-moving markets? Or do you think that there's something very inherent in the complexities of these industries that it's going to be kind of incremental improvements, no matter how money you pour into it and no matter, you know, sort of, how much their actual investment cycle moves into sort of spending on software, how quickly can that be translated into truly sort of transformational changes in terms of their output? So we can spend another two hours talking about that because I think, look, this is the biggest debate I think taking place in a lot of boardrooms today, right? And that's why if you look at different strategies, so first of all, I think the biggest issue for and I focus on manufacturers, but we also cover industrial software companies. What we find is the biggest challenge is cultural. It's how do you make guys on the manufacturing floor talk to IT guys, right? So for example, uh, without naming names, three years ago, there was a company that really was pushing this vision of PLCs. They had very strong position in PLCs very broad offering in PLM. And the idea was you were going to cross sell it. And it actually got traction at the C-suite level because it sounds amazing, right? I have hardware, I have software, and everything is going to work. So then we went to shows and we actually spoke to people who were implementing these projects. And what we found is that the success rate of implementing these projects was maybe 15, 20%. And this is not to say that hardware didn't work. I mean, these guys know how to make amazing hardware. It doesn't mean that software didn't work. The software worked great. The issue was the answer we got without bringing a company like Accenture and redoing the organizational matrix, the IT and OT guys just kept talking pass through each other. And I, I, I think that ended up being an issue. And you know, in the reality, you were not going to get fired for buying this company's hardware or software. So you know, I, I'm not sure everybody was worse off, but it was interesting that this was first attempt, right? So I think that's issue number one. 
issue number two is that, you know, if you look at Azure and uh, if you look at AWS, so before the idea was, hey, I have this siloed but broad offering of software and people can go and buy these modules from me, right? So the new vision that people are pushing is, hey, you know, I'm going to have this uh, software stack and I, Azure, AWS, ultimately will take care of it. And I'll make sure I'll throw enough money to make sure it works well enough. And it's all going to sort of plug in into the cloud. And all of a sudden, the reaction is you do see, right, company like PTC that, uh, you know, we look at this PTC Rockwell strategic alignment was in response to the sort of PLM, PLC vision, right? All of a sudden, both companies are seeing, okay, I have these cloud players coming in you know, sort of the U.S. Marine Corps lead, follow, or get out of the way. So look, all these companies are big partners to the cloud players, right? And if you have the product, you will be the guy that's part of the stack. But you better make sure that you have the product that work. And all of a sudden, you do see this accelerating pivot to cloud by players like PTC and Rockwell, right? Another opportunity we see is that because this old industrial pyramid is so convoluted. All the players have been siloed. You know, you have real scalability issues. So maybe the cloud market is small. And, you know, we've written about Rockwell. We think part of the vision here, hey, we have these legacy players that have a lot of industrial software. They bought it a decade ago to replicate the strategy today would be very expensive. And we also don't have the assets. Why don't we try to leapfrog them, right? The idea is that one of these guys will fail to make the transition culturally, and it's not a big bet. And clearly, Rockwell has a good software business to begin with, but this is an ability to leapfrog the competition and go after cloud. So this is another opportunity. Hmm. Then you have company like Emerson, what they're trying to do that I think they're recognizing the fact that culturally it's tough to pull off. So they took their software assets and they're pulling them together with Aspen. And the idea is to nurture these assets and to be able to grow these assets. We are not sure that as a hardware company, we can pull it off. Why don't we put it into a separate entity and let software guys to do it? You know, they, they do have control of the board. Right. So the idea as they do it, they will exercise control. They also made sure that they created a center of excellence for software that's tied to their hardware to send a message. I think that they're still focusing on software internally. That's another strategy. Yet another strategy, Honeywell, they have amazing capabilities within their process automation business, uh, within the building automation business, warehouse automation business, but none of these assets play together. So they decided, you know, how can we bring it together under one roof? Organically, they have Forge. It's hard. Well, it's uh, so and that hard. that strategy has been rebooted. This is fascinating because one of the things that comes to mind, and I, I want your opinion on this, it would be easy to say what Mark Andreessen said, you know, software is eating the world. And of course, a lot of this transformation is about software. But as you point out, the ITOT, so, you know, roughly the people that care about 
operational technology, which also means hardware mostly, but the control systems of that hardware, which were all proprietary. And then, you know, the software world, which wasn't all open either, but certainly, you know, there's a certain perception that the IT guys perhaps are more modern of the two. But you spoke of it as a culture change. So it's not just a matter of technology and giving you know the leadership seat to the IT guys because they have the modern perspective. It's it's actually cyber physical, right? These are two things that have to coexist in some way. How does the culture piece work for you when you look at, I guess, the failure and success of companies to make that leap? What kind of a move is it you're talking about? Because hiring a systems integrator is kind of like a Band-Aid, I would say, right? So if you need to rely on a third party to make that culture change or to actually just change your product, that is over time going to be an issue. What is the answer in your mind? So a couple of things. A, I, I think what's interesting is that there is a view on the software side. I, I think that industrial companies are dinosaurs and they just all will have to go out of business and they all will look like IBM. What they have is super sticky. They'll never grow again, right? right? I definitely think there'll be a category. And, you know, clearly IBM is doing a lot. You know, I don't cover IBM, right? Clearly they're sort of starting to grow again. They've done stuff. I'm not making a comment on IBM here, but for a while that was the perception, right? Or a company like Cisco, you know, that sort of dominated in the 90s. And then there was this sort of 20-year chasm that they tried to cross, right? It's hard. So I definitely think there are people who will not make the transition and will be stuck with highly profitable businesses that are not going to grow. What I think these companies do have working for them, and I've heard that multiple times, A, when you talk to manufacturers, right? And I'll go into the culture change. When I talk to not manufacturers, they're customers, appreciate that the industrial processes are at the heart of what these companies do. And, you know, they've seen players from China sort of steal their, not steal their IP, but copy their, replicate their IP, whatever term you want to look, right? And they're absolutely paranoid about the fact to put their super secret sauce on the cloud. I would also say that between the two players, right, one of the players is viewed as less reliable. The, you know, the two dominant cloud players and people are absolutely paranoid. They see them as a potential competitor and you can tell them that it's encoded. You can tell them whatever you want to tell them. When I talk to companies, they do not believe that their data is safe on the cloud. They have to do it to make it work, but they rather not, right? So A, there is this natural reluctance to put things on the cloud. So naturally you have this benefit of the hybrid model. The second thing, you know, there's a lot of talk now about emerging data center technology that can create edge capacity or on-prem capacity that is cost competitive with the cloud. You, you actually have startups doing this stuff. So that's another thing that I could actually sort of change the narrative, right? And finally, and this is interesting, I had a conversation recently with a senior IoT person, I guess I would describe them, right? At a company that's a very visionary company, and they clearly have chosen to do a lot of stuff themselves, right? Because they sort of feel that existing players maybe not as dynamic as they should be. But what's interesting, one of the complaints I've heard, and I've heard it from other people, is that software people ultimately do not understand the factory floor. 
So this is what I was going to try to get to, because there is a complexity here that even very, very bright, you know, people out of university who have done fantastically in their software class. There's just a different reality that you're facing. Well, you can't do a beta version if you're on a nuclear power plant. You can't release a beta version and run the power plant because your beta version is just not acceptable, right? Or if you're on a coke bottling plant, you can't have a shutdown. So what's interesting is that this guy said, look, you know, traditional hardware providers, they are our natural partner because they actually understand what it is we do for a living. And as I said, this is a company that's absolutely cutting edge in terms of their approach. And it it was just very, very interesting to see. So I think the key of what I see right now, trying to focus on SaaS internally that's a sign of a company that sort of gets it. And in many cases, these companies have to create internal organizations. You see them upgrade their C-suite, right? For example, Rockwell, you know, you can see it senior people. There is a big generational transition at the top driven by the CEO, right? He gets it that you need a different mindset. The solution that Emerson Aspen, we are a big fans of this solution meaning that, look, we get it, it's tough, we'll let it grow, and we'll let it get a critical mass before we bring it back in. So that's another one. You know, and I've seen so far growing it internally, organically, what I've seen is harder. Hmm. It is harder. But, you know, one company that does stand out to us, Fortive, but it's a very different strategy. You take Inishi, and Dover is doing the same thing. They take Inishi hardware business, and they build or buy initial software business that sort of has to do more with their hardware. That's more of a sort of product strategy, right? And they create this little ecosystem. And the idea is that this ecosystem is way too small for somebody like AWS or Azure to bother to go and disrupt. That's sort of three things that I've seen work. So far, doing it organically, has proven to be tough because companies have a lot of internal competing priorities. And I think the biggest issue the companies are going to face is that you have legacy hardware, you have legacy software, very profitable, different sales model. So these new businesses are going to cannibalize your cash cows. Internally, I think it's going to create a lot of tension and people have not solved it yet. I mean, one opportunity that, you know, obviously comes to mind here is that a new generation company that combines software and hardware natively, you know, from the beginning, not, not, you know, just a garage software company with some clever approaches, but actually that understands and deeply somehow, right, integrates IT and OT from the beginning, whether, you know, as an industrial approach or even as a SaaS platform, it would seem to me that that generation company will have some part of the market, if you are right, that there is this generation change and that there are currently no winning approaches. That's what you're telling me. There are attempts. Industrials are trying all kinds of different things. And no matter what you do, it's hard. And the first paradigm example in the industry, which we talked about, sort of failed pretty, I don't know, miserable a bit. It was painful, right? For everyone. Right. It's exactly right. What's interesting is that the lesson learned is functional right now and in fact, as I said, when I meet with startups, it's GE that comes up as like the guys who really get it because they got really, really hurt, but they, they burn through a lot of cash 
to get there, right? So that's part one. Uh, and look, I want to make it clear, you know, when you talk to people in the industry, the company you describe, AWS is the company, you know, when you bring it up, the company that everybody would throw back at me is AWS, that a- AWS is going to be that company. But, you know, at the same time, you know, we cover companies, you know, like Cognex, Berkshire Gray, right, that actually use a lot of off-the-shelf components, yet they really have this hardware know-how and the secret sauce is that's all they do for a living. And they are successful. And it's very interesting. We, we had a meeting. We had a big tour in Boston focusing on industrial technology and being very niche, very focused, actually pays off. And, you know, we would ask people, well, why can't AWS replicate what you do? And the answer is very niche and you need this elegant design and you also have to be laser focused on your customers, right? So that's, that, that's very interesting, but I definitely do not want to sort of understate the competitive threat that a company like Amazon, because what you bring up and people say, well, hey, you know, these guys know hardware, right? They actually have warehouses. They understand hardware. They pushing with the software. They have infinite budget to hire salespeople, right? Because, you know, two, three years ago, the big pushback was, well, they don't have the sales force, right? Well, guess what? They have the money. They have the sales force. But ultimately, I think making stuff and having that domain expertise, the people who will survive will survive because they do have the domain expertise. And I will just use the example of Cisco and Microsoft, right? Cisco is still around, still very big still very successful, even though, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago, Microsoft made a very, very good run at them. Was it expensive to defend? Absolutely. But they're still there and, uh, you know, they still are doing well in absolute terms as a company. So that's what I would say, but it's not going to be easy. Andrew, I want to jump to a different topic, but there is a relationship here and I want you to explain it. There is a bit of a debate these days as to what happens to globalization. And it's not just geopolitics, but that's kind of how it starts. But I want to bring us to the issue of, I guess, two things, sort of the supply chain issue, which was this bright idea that people had around globalization that, you know, let's just move things in an efficient way and as efficient as possible. And the world's a big oyster. So let's just move everything to wherever it's cost effective. And we have all these ships so we can transport things very easily. And, you know, the network is building up and it's all going to all work out. Now, over, I would say, the last just two years, you have had the geopolitical risk environment change drastically. You've had a pandemic that doesn't seem to go away and a pandemic that is having very serious consequences, potentially now in China, a part of the world that produces a lot of the stuff that's needed around the world. And obviously, we have the situation in Ukraine as well. What happens to world manufacturing as a result of that? What is your best guess as to what's going on inside of boardrooms right now trying to respond to this? And I'm not making a political statement here. I'm just trying to say, this is real. These two mega trends of a pandemic and a drastically increased risk environment are changing a lot. How much are they changing? So it's very interesting. I think the dialogue really started prior to the pandemic. And what you should be thinking is national security needs of the U.S. And what I mean by that is that Department of Defense uh, has sort of started to face the future where over the long term, it's not even that they would not be able to source certain chips domestically, 
but that key U.S. allies would not be manufacturing these chips. And ultimately, you would have to source these chips in China. So that was the start. And, you know, I remember we were at a project for a big contract manufacturer in Wisconsin, and their vision was that over the long term, U.S. government will not be willing to buy iPhones or routers that are not assembled in China, but where the key components are made in China, because before that, there were some headlines about some, uh, you know, chips the design being changed, there was a lot of controversy. So that was the vision. And the view was from them is that U.S. government is big enough a customer where you can start dragging your supply chain back to the U.S. on behalf of the U.S. government. And U.S. government would pay 20, 30 percent premium to get made in America product. So that's where it's all started. And you should be thinking that initially the conversation with Taiwan Semiconductor, Intel, Samsung, that's the root cause of that discussion because ultimately, right, you need to start bringing stuff at scale. And once you start bringing it, some of the supply chain has to come back. So that's the semiconductor piece. And I would argue that for a while, our thesis has been that you are not gonna see much other than semiconductors. And if you go back 20 years ago, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that the true hallowing out of U.S. manufacturing sector was really driven by tech industry, right? It was tech and textile. Auto manufacturers, by and large, kept the capacity here. Machinery, aerospace has grown. But deindustrialization of the U.S. in the past 20 years was all about taking high-tech supply chain out of the U.S. So that was the start. And initially, the the vision was that we're only going to focus at the top of the value chain. So that's part one. Part two, of course, you had COVID. And we realized that the basic chemicals that you needed to make drugs were now manufactured in China. That all the you know vaccines, because of regulatory issues, were no longer made in the US. So it turned out that we did not have the capacity in the US to manufacture the vaccines nor did we have this basic supply chain. And what's really interesting is the real weakness was at the very commodity level, right? It's basic commodity. For example, think about N95 masks. Why couldn't you make N95 masks in the US? Why do we have all these masks imported from China or just regular, you know, surgical masks? Because it's all about this non-woven media right? And the basic chemicals from non-woven media are now made in China. Oh, and by the way, you have to saw these masks and we no longer have a textile industry to saw them. Oh, and in order to attach these rubber straps to these masks, this job was done in Mexico. And guess what? Mexico was shut down during COVID. So you couldn't do it. So the vulnerability that we have experienced during COVID was actually at a very basic level. And that really did also play into sort of national security concerns. I will tell you that that part of the equation is yet to be resolved. So let me just state that. But what did happen post-COVID, exactly right, supply chains started to buckle, right? Because of shutdowns in China, because of shutdowns in Southeast Asia. And one very interesting thing that we are seeing 
is that, you know, we'll always ask companies, what would it take to really reshore in the U.S., right? And as I said, outside of this leading edge chip technology, what we would get back was, look, the biggest, yeah, you can bring back casting and forgings. Steel, steel can probably come back. Funnily enough, actually, furniture manufacturing has made a big comeback in the U.S., believe it or not, over the past decade. Why is that? Uh, because people don't want to wait for their furniture? Yeah, I, I think so. I, yeah. I, I'm not quite sure, to be completely frank. But yeah. like the only true sort of reshoring success story so far has been furniture. And furniture, and uh, you know, we, we did do the right things, and vaccine manufacturing did come back to the U.S., But what we're seeing now is that the debate is that, look, the key bottleneck for me is electronic components. And the electronic supply chain is sitting in Southeast Asia. So I can bring all the assembly work back to the U.S. I want. It will still not resolve the real bottleneck that I have because the bottleneck is electronics. So what has absolutely changed, we just hosted a big conference in London with key industrial companies. So what we're hearing is that U.S. chip manufacturers are actually starting to put in what's called trailing edge technology, right? So these are the chips that industrial companies use, not the leading edge stuff, but that has been the biggest impediment. So what we've heard is that capacity in the U.S. could be available as early as 23 probably not going to see things that really move the needle until late 24, 25. But even when that happens, that actually opens the door for real reshoring in North America that goes beyond cutting edge semiconductors and maybe biopharma, because that's really all we have been seeing right now. And another thing that's happening about reshoring, it's not necessarily reshoring, but because of shortage of labor, you know, you are starting to see focus on automation. We've done some work that indicates that automation spending lags labor costs by two years. Wow. So whatever is happening right now with wage inflation, this cake is still being baked. This cake is going to be served in 2024 in terms of uh, the actual investment. So data point Honeywell just announced that they've doubled their automation spending in 22, will double it again in 23. But if you think about it, all of this really is in response to what happened in 21. So that's just fascinating where we are in that cycle. And I'll just tell you a funny anecdote. We were sitting in Boston and we were having dinner with some automation players. And one of them is a consulting firm. And they were telling us that one of their customers called them up and was asking them, whether or not to make an investment in automating a production line. And somewhere in the conversation, they figured out that the cost of the consultation exceeded the cost of the project. (laughs) But it just tells you the kind of inertia manufacturing companies have. So from that perspective, we think that we have the best CapEx cycle ahead of us probably in 20, 30 years. We think uh, automation is going to be a huge part of it just because you don't have labor. We think industries like oil and gas will undergo revolutionary change in terms of their approach to software spending. And we think on the manufacturing side, as you finally put in this capacity, maybe I don't necessarily buy into this you know, revolutionary redesign of uh, you know, this manufacturing pyramid, but I do think people will do things differently. Cloud matters, increased processing capacity on the edge matters. 
So I think you put it in together. I think the next decade is going to be super, super excited. We're probably somewhere in the first inning here. Andrew, it's a fascinating conversation. You have such an in-depth understanding of this market. It's just interesting to listen to. And I'm wondering, as a last question, who can you really talk to about these trends? Because there's so much going on here. So there's a small analyst community, obviously, that tries to understand these markets. But it's not what you've been talking about here isn't really just one market because it depends on technology trends. It depends on industrial capacity. There's just so much coming together. Just listening to this, I can kind of understand why it is complicated if you are in a boardroom, because this doesn't seem to me to be something where you can do like a good old optimization analysis, or you can like do some clever framework or, or, or just think your way out of the problem. There are so many dependencies here that you don't even control, no matter what number of resources you sort of have in your company, right? There's geopolitics. There's technology coming in left field. There is competitive moves. What, what does your competitor do? This seems to me that it's not a market that could really optimize very easily. No, it's not. Look, I mean, uh, we have found some industry consultants, not the big ones. It's actually uh, the smaller, more niche ones that are sort of more on the factory floor. As I said, what I find invaluable is talking to the people, to the actual salespeople who sell the product, who have to sell the solution as opposed to the CEO or CFO, right? Because they have a vision of how it's supposed to work and then it actually how it works. And the conversations that are useful is uh, also people who run the factory floor. And then the startups are invaluable, right? You talk to all of them and a lot of them think, you know, the old guy's just going to go away. And I don't think it's going to be that simple, but I, I think this ability to envision things, right? And to start in your head with a clean sheet of paper and have this vision is also super useful. You know, as, as then I said, I mean, I've definitely, look, I mean, the legacy guys understand the product really well. They have a lot of very capable people. You know, the companies we cover, Rockwell, Emerson, Honeywell, Portive, GE, all of these guys have very, very smart people inside the company. You know, I think the challenge for all of them is that they're big complex systems that are designed to optimize return for shareholders. But, you know, look, we've run into a lot of very, very smart people across the board. So that's who I would be talking to. Yeah. You know, as I said, uh, to me, the most valuable thing, like I'm going to Hanover Messe, what has been successful for us is to go into this area of the show. We have startups and just start asking them questions. And a lot of them won't talk to you. Because they're like, we're not for sale. I'm like, I'm, I'm not, you know, that's not what I do for a living. But look, over the years, we've established dialogue with uh, some very, very smart people. But as I said, don't dismiss the legacy guys. As I said, PTC, they definitely have a vision on SaaS transition, right? You know, if you're Aspen and if you have 50, 70% of the market for what you do, we'd like disrupting that really fast, right? ANSYS, you know, they're like number one at everything they do in terms of simulation. Maybe startups look at these things as these big, unwieldy creatures, but, you know, it's hard to take a creature like that down as well. You know, there is a reason why these creatures sort of tend to sit on the top of the food chain, too. So I, I just think it's going to be fascinating. And I think the story is still to be written, which is what makes my job super exciting. Yeah, Andrew. And it seems to me that you're going to have to come back because this conversation is evolving. So I hope I can bring you back in a little oh, while. Oh, I would love to be back. Yeah, thank you. 
when a new disruption has happened. And it could be three months, it could be six months. It's hard to know these days. No, thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Andrew. You have just listened to episode 77 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trun Arnevenheim. The topic was Industrial Tech Transformation Outlook. Our guest was Andrew Oben, Managing Director of Equity Research at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. In this conversation, we talked about Wall Street's track record for digital transformation, where investment is made and why, and Wall Street's tech trajectory. My takeaway is that Wall Street's track record for digital transformation isn't necessarily good because these processes are complex. On the other hand, firms that exceed can command a premium and can forge ahead. Wall Street's tech trajectory is interesting to watch, as digital prowess isn't a property of only tech companies anymore. As that truth sinks in, it will change valuations as well. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. And if you liked this episode, you might also like episode 21, The Future of Digital in Manufacturing with Shalayan Arkhan, VP of Manufacturing Industry at Microsoft. Find that episode at augmentedpodcast.co slash 21. Hopefully you'll find something awesome in these or in other episodes. And if so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, the frontline operations platform that connects the people, machines, devices, and systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially where industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter. See you next time.